All right, welcome back into the Idea Collision. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Green, and I hope today finds you having a good day. Uh, it's sunny here anyway, so it's nice, and I uh, got to actually roll down my windows, which is strange for Wisconsin. Uh, we are continuing our discussion in truth, and before we get into that, I kind of, if you're new joining us, I just kind of want to give a background uh, briefly to the podcast that, that we do here. And so for about a half an hour or so, we try to discuss things that are actually worthwhile. I know so many podcasts, there's so much content out there in, in different areas um, that is really, it's time filler, and, and some of it's, I suppose, interesting, but it doesn't really leave you with anything. Uh, it, it's just kind of a conversation, or it's controversial, and, and what we try to do here is to to be thought-provoking without being um, necessarily uh, provocative. Uh, we we want to leave you with something when when you're done, and so we kind of look at different ideas or philosophies, history, events, whatever, and and look at how they interact with religious themes or spiritual themes. And so we've been discussing truth, which I think is, as I've said, probably the most important thing to lay the groundwork of before you have any type of a an intellectual discussion or a philosophical discussion to to really understand what the ground rules for any discussion are, and, and we have to begin with truth. Um, and we've seen how we, we began kind of with the idea of how generations developed to get to where we are today and, and to see how those have in, evolved and and influenced society in every aspect of where we are at today, whether it be crime or, uh, you know, even political things and things that you wouldn't necessarily connect with um, with some of the events that have occurred even up to hundreds of years ago. So uh, we want to also uh, show kind of some of the, the dichotomy of thought that people have, these, these, these two ways of thinking. Um, you know, we want to be right. You know, people have this dual nature. We all want to be right. And yet, at the same time, none of us really want to change our minds. None of us want to be forced to change our minds because we're comfortable with, especially the older you are, you kind of have established what you think. And so I want to be right. But if I am wrong on anything, I don't want to confront that. So it, it really is kind of a, a contradiction. Uh, and so so we looked last week at kind of the one of the, the two ways we handle this this dichotomy, and that is that that a lot of times we just simply avoid it. We avoid it in in several ways, but we can just ignore truth, which is what postmodernism is. It says there's no truth, and um, so whatever I say, I feel I don't I don't you know I, I just get to determine what that is, and so I don't really feel like you know acknowledging any evidence whatsoever. And and so uh, so we talked about that a little bit, and and then there's an idea that, well, uh, you know, I uh, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna demand that I'm I'm correct, you know, and um, I, so I, I whatever I'm doing I'm I'm avoiding, uh, you know, and and sadly, you know, this comes to a point where. As we do this, what we would realize, and I'll use a silly illustration, but as we do this, it's, it becomes dangerous, becomes destructive. And we'll talk more about that kind of as we, we wrap up today. But, you know, go back to the podcast where we talked about 
those those decolonizations or deconstructionists, you know, uh, in, in Cape Town University, if one of them is standing on the top of a building and they want to get over to another building on campus, and so they decide instead of getting down, you know, off of the roof and going over to the to the other the other campus building, they just decide, well, you know, it's a lot straighter. You know, I'll just determine my own physics, and it's a straight line over there, and I'll just walk there from here. Well, they're, they're going to find out. I don't really—I hate that Isaac Newton. Why did he decide to, to, to make gravity? That was very arbitrary of him to do that. And so they're going to walk over, you know, from their building over to another building, and they're going to find out, of course, that um, they're going to suffer the consequences of of ignoring truth and and— trying to avoid that so uh, so whether whether we're just trying to make our own truth or whether we're trying to uh, trying to ignore inconvenient sources of truth we talked about that as well it's going to be destructive to us in the long term if we want to know that we're right we're going to have to entertain some things that are not um, convenient for us and and consider those we might decide that those aren't accurate just because it's different doesn't mean it's true doesn't mean that we're always wrong but but we need to to know that that we're right which means we're going to have to entertain some inconvenient things from time to time uh, and I want to consider I want to kind of like I said we, we sometimes pull in things that you don't think are connected and so I want to go back and look as we're going to begin our our second method, which is more, it's avoidance, because sometimes you cannot get around, you know, opposite thoughts. We, we try to control those, we try to filter those, but what happens when I can't? I'm confronted with it, and it's right there. What do we do? Well, sometimes if we still don't want to, to face it, what we'll do is we'll try to manipulate it. Uh, we'll, we'll try to do what's called rationalization. And uh, I, I want to talk about the father Oh, he's considered the father of modern psychotherapy. Now, actually, no one quotes Sigmund Freud on anything uh, because he put the psycho in psychotherapy. Uh, he did get one thing accidentally right, uh, I think, uh, and and we'll talk about that. But but mostly he was wrong. And I want to kind of go to something even not directly connected to his psychotherapy. It's, it's indirectly connected. Uh, but... Um, in the we we call the the 80s the era of of you know of cocaine well we usually when we say that are talking about the 1980s what we don't know is that it was also true in the 1880s uh those two decades for some reason 100 years apart were were big and sigmund freud is one of the big reasons why cocaine was was a big deal uh, specifically in europe and it started to to get into the united states um, that, among some other things that were happening, was was the cause kind of for the Food and Drug Administration's creation to regulate. So this is, there's some crazy things going on. But he wrote a article in, in 1884. Uh, he was massively addicted to cocaine his whole life. Uh, he wrote a, a article called Uber Coca, and it was the... Um, how great cocaine was, and that was basically his article, uh, is he had a close friend who was also an author and also a doctor who put put uh, this, uh, I guess, the results of this profound study in, in 
his book and in one of his novels and and developed a character character with you know this uh tendency if you will uh in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle of course who wrote uh the very popular Sherlock Holmes at the time uh had Sherlock Holmes as as kind of a frequent user of cocaine it, it even found its way into beverages i mean that's its namesake beverages coca cola uh coca from cocaine uh, which kind of made it uh, incredibly addictive. Eventually, they realized that that this was very harmful. So, so one of the things that happened is all this, uh, these scientific journals and and these um, these uh, popular societal um, avenues of of promoting it made it made this become an epidemic in the 1880s addicted it might still be this might be still the the reason for cocaine's popularity uh up up till recently i mean i know it's cocaine has declined as some of the cheaper uh harder drugs have have a you know come in like like uh you know meth and some of those but uh this this has something to do with rationalization because this almost killed his uh, reputation, Sigmund Freud's. And, and so it was around this time that he was doing work in psychotherapy and counseling and various things like that, and he was having a significant number of women come and, and talk about things in their life and things in their past. And I, I can't get too much into detail because this is kind of family-friendly. Uh, being as how it's family-friendly, I can't tell you the most psycho things that, that Sigmund Freud ever said they are. You can look them up on yourself if you've never heard them yourself. You know, uh, They're horrible. Uh, but um, he was coming across a lot of data, and this data was saying that, that women were reporting different types of abuse as, as children at the hands of relatives specifically. And... and he was uncovering something which we we know the statistics today they're not really that different they might have been even worse back then but uh uh because of less media coverage because of less awareness of it but but it was it was epidemic and he was discovering this epidemic and so he was confronted with an unpleasant choice now people talk about this today but it was definitely true then talking about a society that is male dominated um, and and so he was realizing what happens if I publish an article, given his reputation, uh, given his one mistake in the past that he was sort of starting to get over uh, in the late 1880s and, and into the 1890s. What if I publish an article saying, you know, here's all these men that are behaving very badly and, and abusing children? Uh, and it, he knew that that wasn't going to fly. So what he did was he published an article, another article, and, and he had a whole theory surrounding this that was popular in psychotherapy until, you know, relatively recent in history. And and what he said was that uh, the girls weren't actually, hadn't actually suffered this. Now, <clears throat> he, he said it, it's, he had to come up with a theory because there was so much data, obviously we we know our our mind uh, is stretched to to its limits, trying to say that this many people were were making it up, 
simultaneously. That that type of phenomenon doesn't exist statistically. So it is, he looked for a reason. He tried to come up with a psychological reason why all these women would be making it up. And we said he came up with a theory. It's called projection. And what he said was, um, you know, they actually it, it didn't happen, but they wanted it to happen. It was is their subconscious wanted this to happen, and, and that's why they they created it. Well, obviously, you can understand the horrific nature of what this did to Europe. Uh, but it kept, it, it did a number of things. First of all, it, um, it, it delegitimized the girls and, and the women who were victims, right? And so the, the, the adult victims are going to have to continue to live in that, that situation with that grief and not able to heal, not able to to truly counsel because what their counselors are now all men are all going to tell them, oh, you just imagined it, you know, and that's not going to assist anybody getting better. It then secondarily gave men cover, or at least some men who are doing this, to continue doing that because no one is going to assume that it's true because the great Dr. Sigmund Freud said it's not true and everybody else is picking up on this. Uh, so, so they're excused. No one's going to investigate. They can keep creating another generation of victims. Right? So, uh, and so it's just going to be a self-cycling thing. So, so it was a, a horrible, a horrible thing that he did. Well, uh, what was the what was the root cause of this what why did this come out it didn't come out from a, an actual objective view of the information right anybody with with any sense in their head would have looked at the information and come to the the correct view is that these women or at least the majority of them were telling the truth but this was a rationalization he had a vested interest in in not telling the truth and that was to to keep his career you know he was not going to survive a second you know scandalous position uh so um uh, so he is so he comes up one of one of the things that he came up with uh was the idea of self-defense mechanism which is actually true he sort of stumbled across that that idea that that we do things whether consciously or subconsciously to protect ourselves and he's actually the perfect example of it uh whether he knew it or not uh that that his theories were were coming from the the motivation of self-preservation he was trying to preserve his career trying to preserve his reputation and so he came up with this rationalization as a self-defense mechanism, uh, and, and so he reinterpreted the data to fit what he wanted. He couldn't avoid it, in other words. He couldn't just say, I didn't do these interviews. Th th he's got the data. He's written it down. It's there. It's in his notebooks. But he's got to do something to avoid the conclusion that he doesn't like. So he can't avoid it. He rationalizes it. So uh, I, th I think... It's important to know why we are motivated. We'll get to some of those motivations in, in just a second. When we talk about some of the motivations that, that people have for 
rationalization or just for life philosophies. You know, you the, the life philosophies of postmodernism and modernism are, if it feels good, do it. Right? Do what is right for you. Live your truth. All these sayings. Um, follow your heart. And that's a big one. Follow your heart. And what this says is that my emotions are the thing that should set the agenda. Well, Jeremiah, the prophet in the Bible, um, probably what almost 3,000 years ago made this statement. He said, The heart is deceitful more than anything else, and no one can understand it. Uh, it is it is a tricky bugger. And so every philosophy we have today says, no, you should really trust your heart to make decisions for you and determine the direction. Now, we have a mind, and we have a, a, a part of us that, that is emotional, and they're both valuable. They both do things. They're both a, a, an important part of us. But what happens then is in, in, in postmodernism, what happens is that the especially with rationalization the heart or the the feelings the emotions become the center for our direction and for decision making and determining truth what i want to be true we still have a mind we have to figure out how to utilize the mind so the heart makes the mind the slave and it has to come up with an answer right it has to come up with an answer to explain why the heart's right and it puts things totally backwards. Our mind was designed to to be the thing that gives us direction and and, and you know process information, and then the heart, the motivation it becomes the seat of motivation, the the encouragement, the energy to to do and perform those decisions that are made with the mind. That's the way we're supposed to operate, uh, but but we don't. We operate completely backwards. Uh, when we are influenced, that is, by uh, postmodernism or relativism, the subjective way of thinking, where we deny that truth exists, or at least some truth. And so I want to look at some specific motivations. These are, these are just a handful. There's, there's many more, and, and they cross over. Uh, but, but sometimes we minimize, we, we, or I should say rationalize, um, because we're trying to minimize disappointment. Um, you'll see this. I, I used to do this. I, I used to be an avid sports follower. I, I'm not nearly so much. In fact, almost very, very little at all. But I, I would do this thing where I was, I, I didn't want the disappointment of my team letting me down. You get all amped up for a game or whatever. And so I would convince myself that the team was going to lose. And then and then I my, my oh, they're probably not that good or whatever. I, w- I would minimize a possible disappointment. Uh, and then if, if they won, I would feel pleasantly surprised. You know, but then I went through all this torture ahead of time, you know, that I put myself through. But I wanted to end on an up note. Well, it's who cares if you're doing this in sports, but... But potential outcomes when we're when we're wanting to accomplish things, we minimize our our disappointment, and we maybe set our standards low as a result of this. Uh, so, so this is a, a, a. I want you to look at how destructive these thought processes are. These rationalizations they seem logical, they seem okay, they seem like they won't do anything, but they are destructive long term. 
uh, and, and for a number of reasons. The second one that we want to look at is uh, to, uh, to process discomfort we have that comes from failure. I, I've, 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 I need to justify my failure. I've, I've, I've tried to accomplish something. It didn't work. Now, I can do a lot of things. I can, I can do this by blaming other people. You know, it's their fault. This didn't happen. Or some unexplainable cause, something intervened, circumstances were against me, what, whatever the, the case may be. I, 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 can, uh, uh, I can come up with any number of rationalizations why I failed. But what happens, you know, it was a conspiracy theory or, or whatever. I, um, but it will never be because I was wrong. It's never because my attempt was based on a an idea that was incorrect or or because of some flaw that I had that I wasn't able to accomplish that I want to get rid of that I can't avoid the I, the fact that it failed but so I have to come up with an explanation and so I rationalize it away um maybe I want to avoid uh, you know some discomfort from being wrong uh, I, I'm I'm wrong and I can't you know, you get a 40 on a test. Well, it's the teacher's fault or uh, she should have prepared me. The book was, the you know, the, the book didn't explain it well. I, like I can come up with, you know, that would be like you're in college, you know, and, and those are the types of answers. But but just being wrong in general, um, you, you've, you've been under the impression of something and, and you're confronted with the fact that you're not correct about something. And a lot of what we'll do, uh, is we engage here in, in something we're going to talk more specifically about probably next week and the week after. Uh, but there's things called logical fallacies. You might be familiar with them, but I want to familiarize you with uh, what all a logical fallacy means. It's logic that is incorrect. It's it's a it's a bad argument. It doesn't really support what we're trying to get to, but it sounds like it does. And they're they're very sneaky. They're very tricky. Um, so we use bad logic to try to get away from confronting the fact that we're incorrect. Uh, another one is when we want to avoid what is obviously a behavior modification that we, we need to make. I learned something. I'm confronted with information. It tells me I'm going to have to change a behavior. It's not just that I'm going to have to acknowledge that I'm incorrect, but I'm going to have to acknowledge that I need to do something based with this information. And and that's uncomfortable. And so, um, so I'll say things like maybe, well, everybody's doing it, right? That's a rationalization. I don't have to change because everybody else is doing it. Or, uh, you know, I could be worse. I could be that person. I'll compare to something worse. It, it's actually helping that person. This behavior is actually helping that person in the long run, if you think about it, because... You know they're gonna they're gonna become a better person for this. So I can continue my bad behavior because it's 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 beneficial to somebody else. All right? We come up with all sorts of rationalizations. Uh, there's, there's an endless supply of them because we are good at rationalizing. Just it comes natural to us, and so that that helps me avoid the the work of of changing my behavior. Uh, I might want to give a reason for just a negative circumstance, something that's happened to me. 
and um, so, so some of these previous ones will will kind of come back in. It's a conspiracy theory. It's uh, you know something happened. It's other people did it. But sometimes uh, religious people will engage in this too, uh, and they engage in spiritual versions of this, and they'll say things like, "Well, you know, I really don't deserve this anyway." And it could be a non-Christian that says this. It doesn't make a difference. I don't deserve it. It's really essentially a person with low self-esteem. Uh, but but sometimes that gets uh, Christianized by thinking, you know, that this is humility. It's just called false humility. And we, we feel like we're being spiritual, but it's not really. Or, you know, it was for the best. For me, you know, I'm going to suffer. But God was doing this for—that's why I'm in a negative circumstance. Now, it might be. I don't know, but but we instantly sometimes jump to this uh, this logic. It's it was God's will, and we come up with some explanation for why God has done this to me. Uh, I might rationalize again by a comparison. Instead of I'm better than other people, well, other people have it worse than me, so I guess I really don't have the right to feel bad about this negative circumstance that I live in. Again, this is not necessarily about me being bad, but just a, a bad situation that I live in. Uh, it might be poverty, that, that's beyond my control, or whatever. Abuse that we talked about, it, it's it's my fault, or something. Uh, and those all come from negative self-esteem, so these are slightly different. Uh, we have disillusionment sometimes uh, with other people. You've had a hero, and you've you know, if you've had a hero and you've watched them enough, you've seen them do something stupid or you've seen them do something out of character. And that, we, we don't want to feel that. We, we like our heroes to be perfect. And so when a hero fails or a loved one, uh, a relative, a, a, a parent, whatever, has someone we look up to, a teacher, whatever, when they ha when they have flaws that are visible or we see them incorrect in some way we will rationalize on their behalf well you know they it's not their fault maybe i was the one that caused them to have this failure or you know they there's some reason why they're really actually are perfect and and just this one situation you know it, we we try to make excuses and it sounds good because it sounds like i'm being uh magnanimous for that person um, but really, actually, what it is, is, is it is, in a weird way, it's self-serving, because why? Why Why am I doing that? Because they're my hero, and I don't want my hero to be imperfect. It's because they're connected to me, and that might have implications on the type of person that I would admire, and I would only admire a good person, so they must be good. There must be some reason why this flaw, you know, showed itself. Um, and then another self-worth um, where I would excuse others um, when they, specifically when they hurt me. You know, uh, why did this person abuse me? Why did this person do something specifically to me? Well, it was my fault. And we see this a lot, especially when people are really young and suffer this. That it's something, why did, why did my parents get a divorce? I must have done something. That's a common one. And, and, uh, it, it might might be older. I, I might uh, do this to try to avoid a conflict that would put me in a worse situation. So I, I don't want. I want to avoid a divorce. So I won't say what I feel or what what I'm suffering. I want to avoid conflict, and I, I don't want them to leave for whatever reason. So so again, it is sort of self-serving, but but it comes from a, a negative 
self-esteem uh, that we're trying to protect ourselves, these self-defense mechanisms. They're all self-defense mechanisms, and they are destructive in, in their thoughts, and, and here's why. Uh, there's a number of reasons. The value of rationalization, right? The values that rationalization uses, that's where the danger is because it sets up a number of things. First of all, um, they're always short-term versus long-term. Rationalizations are, are almost, I would say they're almost always short-term. I'm going to get in trouble. I better do this thing. Uh, whatever the rationalization for it, I need to do this. Uh, I don't think about the long-term good uh, for myself even. Uh, even if I was going to be self-serving, if I thought about the long-term good, I might make a better decision. But short-term solutions are almost always band-aid solutions, and they almost always end up with deception of other people, not just myself. Uh, another one is that the protection versus improvement. Uh, Self-defense is there to protect me from punishment. Maybe I don't want to get in trouble, or um, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever I'm trying to, whatever harm I'm trying to avoid, right? And and when I do that, what I'm focusing on is the external impact of this unpleasant situation, the circumstance. Whereas improvement focuses on the inner person that is me, and, and I'm I'm going to to benefit again long term because improvement is always a time thing. Um, and and so protection versus improvement is always where rationalization steps in and, and it causes long-term damage and internal damage. Uh, it's always, or almost always, the easy versus difficult. Rationalization is there to make things easier for me. Uh, manipulating facts is easy. You just have to, you know, you have to know how to be deceptive to yourself. And we're good at it. We're we're like born into it. But challenging your biases, and uh, not just challenging your biases, but working on those internal flaws and being honest about them, that is hard work. Uh, it, it's emotional hard work. It's physical hard work sometimes. It's spiritual hard work. It's just hard. And so rationalization tries to avoid those things. And the last one that I'm going is probably a lot more. Um, and a trained therapist could give you a lot more. I'm not a trained therapist. Just A lot of these are just things that I've, you know, over 50 years of my life I've encountered and seen, and not just in other people but in myself. Uh, but self-seeking versus the community. Uh, and when I say community, I don't mean your neighborhood. That could mean that. Uh, rationalization always has one beneficiary, myself. That That's who I'm trying to benefit when I rationalize. And again, even those times where we think we're, benef we're, we're trying to do this on behalf of other people, what we established, what we saw, is that really I'm kind of at the center of it. Uh, and it feels like I'm being generous to other people. But really, it's, it's to protect myself. The community can be a lot of things. It could be work, the workplace. It could be your school. The community could be your church. The, the, the community could actually be your neighborhood. 
uh, it could be society as a whole, what, whatever group that you find yourself in, a, a group of a small group of friends that you, whatever it is, rationalization is always going to benefit you to the detriment of that group that you find yourself in in the situation where you want to rationalize. Well, it was okay for me uh, to do this thing at work. Why? Well, guess what? Other people suffered. Other people had to pick up the slack or whatever the, the thing was. W your friends had to, well, it was okay for me to to do this thing with my friends. We were out, and we, whatever. Again, they're going to have to do something to carry the load for whatever it was that, y that you didn't want to do. And so it is destructive to other people, and it is destructive to myself because long-term I re only reinforce those bad habits. So I, I want you to, um, to I, I hope, you, I, just, I, I don't want to leave you on, in a negative place. Uh, it, maybe this one kind of feels a little bit negative, but uh, there are ways to avoid those. And, and honesty, self-honesty, and, and finding a person that helps you through honesty and will be there not to judge you but but to help you finding those people finding those um, relationships that that foster self-honesty and say you know what th these are the hardcore facts um, and th they're not pleasant sometimes but but they're going to be you know e five four three months ahead a couple of weeks ahead, you, these will be changes, and you look back and you go, "Wow, things are already starting to improve." It feels like a long time. It feels like a lot of work. It is work, but but that is the the process of of making ourselves better people, um, and not trying to figure out the heart because the heart is so so deceptive, but charting our path with our mind. Uh, and letting our heart be uh, occupy its natural place, which is to motivate us to make those those changes. So, again, I always say uh, check our links, um, uh, whichever way you're listening or, or watching. There are links um, to in the description uh, to point you to more resources. Uh, specifically, if you have some of these these issues that we talked about, there are ways to um, to deal with those. Uh, if you're not a part of a church, I always suggest that people become a part of a church and uh, where you will find people who are generally, uh, genuinely interested in you. Uh, so uh, I hope you have a really good week. I hope this information benefits you. Okay.